you know, it's clear that we've been successful in this mission. Right, Gabby? And I'm so honored that Arizona has entrusted me to represent our state in the United States Senate for six more years. First of all, thank you, Nevada. Thank you. I am so grateful to every volunteer who knocked on doors, who made phone calls, who wrote postcards and letters, and who had the courage to publicly stand up and fight for our state. And listen, to all Nevadans, whether, whether you voted for me or not, I will always fight for you. Those were Democratic Senators Mark Kelly of Arizona and Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada. Both were in major races in their respective states, and they won against candidates who falsely claimed the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Overall, election-denying candidates performed worse than expected during the midterms. But that doesn't mean the conspiracy theory is gone. Some of you had election deniers run and win in your state. My name is Cara, and I live in Texas. I feel bad that election deniers won in my state, um, especially our attorney general who led the charge for election denial. It's just embarrassing and unfortunate. I don't understand why people voted for him. So it's very frustrating. Cara, thanks for that message. After the break, we take a closer look at some of the midterm races and ask the question, what do the wins and losses from this midterm reveal about the future, or lack thereof, of election deniers? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwool. From hiking summits to running errands. Backcountry skiing to couch surfing, Smartwool base layers are everything you need to go anywhere. They make versatile merino wool base layers that offer all-day comfort for all your adventures. They're the first layer you'll want to put on and the last layer you'll want to take off. Enjoy 15% off your first order and find the right base layer for you at smartwool.com. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our first guests. Edward Foley is a professor of constitutional and election law at Ohio State University. He's also the author of Ballot Battles, the history of disputed elections in the United States. Ned, welcome back. Yes, good to be with you. Also with us is David Becker. He's the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. That's a nonpartisan nonprofit that works with election officials to build trust in elections. David, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Jen. Ned, every election denier hoping to oversee elections in a battleground state was defeated, including in Arizona and Nevada this weekend. Why do you think election deniers arguably underperformed compared to other candidates? Well, I do think it was a great day for democracy, a great week in terms of uh, seeing the results. Um, I think those of us who believe in elections and believe in free and fair elections can breathe a lot easier than we were, you know, two weeks ago, say. Um, And I think the voters really care about their right to vote and want to protect it and want to make elections meaningful. So on the whole, a lot of good news. But as you indicated, it's not completely 100% good news. As as your caller said, in red states, denialist uh, 
fared better than, say, in blue states or purple states. So a little bit of a mixed message, but uh, in those competitive states, denialists were defeated in ways that were really important. And why do you think they lost those races? Well, I, I, I think a combination of reasons. I mean, I think people are pouring over the exit polls and so forth. I mean, I think, you know, the abortion issue was important. Um, people have talked, I think, correctly about the combination of Dobbs and the denialism caused moderate voters to perceive the Republican Party as going too extreme. You know, the, there was this, um, I think, correct labeling of MAGA Republicans as MAGA Republicans as, in, as extremists. And, you know, the average voter in the average state is not extreme. And, and so it was a big victory for moderates. And it showed that the, you know, the center of the electorate wants to control outcomes if it can. Well, most Republicans on the ballot this year were election deniers. According to the Washington Post, 291 ran and most of them won. But again, those victories were almost completely in districts that the that were GOP favored, not really considered competitive. We got this tweet from Mike who says, please give the definition of election denier. It seems to mean someone who denies an election. David, when we talk about this, these, these uh, candidates, what range of arguments were we hearing from them? Were they always talking about the 2020 presidential election or was it a little more complex than that? I think it was largely looking back at the 2020 presidential election. This really was born out of the denial that came from the losing presidential candidate, former President Trump, without any evidence. I mean, I think it's important to note that well over 60 courts reviewed these cases. There was never found, never any evidence uh, presented that would suggest any problems with the 2020 election. And as we sit here over two years past that election, there's still not been a shred of evidence presented to any court or law enforcement agency uh, that would cast doubt on the 2020 election. But yes, I think it's largely defined by the uh, denial of the um, pretty clear outcome of the 2020 election. Um, I wrote a book on this with Major Garrett of CBS News called The Big Truth, where we look at these issues. And um, clearly, you have the candidates like some fringe candidates in states like Arizona and Nevada and elsewhere that ran on a platform of election denial as if the idea that the election was stolen was actually some kind of policy prescription for the future. According to the Washington Post, 170 election deniers won their races as of Thursday. Most of them were running for House seats. David, how concerning is that for you? Well, I think we're still in a perilous moment. It could it could go bad in some ways, but I'm going to express some cautious optimism right now. Um, we, the, the courts have held in the past, the institutions around the judiciary have held. There are systems in place, as we've noted in, there, in the swing states, the people who are going to be overseeing elections, the secretaries of state and other chief election officials are not election deniers. Even, um, even in some states like Georgia, Secretary Raffensperger won re-election and he very famously stood up to the pressures from President Trump in two th- 2020, and I think he would again in 2024. So I think we've got some guardrails in place. They're not completely firm yet. Another thing that gives me some cautious optimism is I'm hopeful that the Electoral Count Act reform that has moved through both houses of Congress will be finalized in the lame duck session, and that will clarify some of these guardrails and make it more difficult for a minority of members of Congress to derail the entire process. I I like the cautious optimism, David, but I also wonder what the pervasiveness of election denialism means for the way Americans view and trust in our democracy. 
Oh, again, this was a big part of the book that I wrote, uh, The Big Truth. I mean, this is a corrosive um, uh, lie that has spread like a cancer throughout largely the extreme right right now. There are elements of it on the extreme left as well. And we cannot live in a democracy where it's impossible for losers to accept the idea that they lost. A secure election cannot be defined simply by whether my candidate won or lost. And there are, again, there are, there are some cracks in the walls of election denialism right now. We've seen some election deniers, even very prominent ones, um, like the attorney general candidate in Michigan, like the governor's candidate in Pennsylvania, concede. Hopefully we'll see what happens in the Arizona race in the coming days. But I'm still cautiously optimistic. On that, in an effort to cast doubts on the midterms, Republicans filed a, a sweep of lawsuits even before we knew the results. What are these lawsuits about? Yeah, there's a variety of things, but I also think David's point that he made earlier is really important, is that most of these election deniers who lost their race are actually conceding defeat uh, now that the, the math is in and they're accepting the reality of their defeat. That is a really important element of this. And it, it relates to something else that David said that I agree with, which is, you know, denialism has largely been around the 2020 presidential election and the fact that Trump himself led the denialist movement. And all these denier candidates joined with that. We have to hope that, that it's isolated to that one election and that one circumstance. And that when even these denialists are on the ballot, they're not trying to replicate the same playbook. Um, one of the reasons why I think we're not completely out of the woods yet is we don't know, again, what 2024 is going to look like. Uh, you know, the rumor is that Trump's going to announce that he's running. You know, how dangerous this dynamic is, you know, is still to be determined. So yes, a lot of lawsuits were happening in the run-up to uh, to this year. But I think the most significant thing this year is that the denialists themselves weren't trying to repeat what Trump did uh, last time. So what, what are the status? What's the status of these lawsuits? Well, a lot of them were, were involving uh, casting uh, absentee ballots, for example. The, a lot of technical details about whether you can cure your absentee ballot, the time frame for that. You know, election law varies state to state. So, you know, hard to paint with a, a complete national brush, so to speak. Um, I think, you know, most of these, there's really two types of lawsuits in our uh, voting process, the pre-election day litigation trying to affect the rules for casting votes before they're cast. And then there's another set of lawsuits that can emerge after the, the votes have been cast and you're trying to affect the counting process. So a lot of litigation before election day over the rules, they, they kind of get put to bed once you have election day itself. We haven't seen a lot of litigation that I'm aware of fighting over results yet. I mean, they're still counting votes. We may see some recounts. So I think most of the pre-election day litigation uh, is essentially moot at this point. Mm. David, what about the post-election day lawsuits? Could they actually do anything to challenge or change the midterm results? I mean, they theoretically could. Um, one of the important things I think, um, and I agree with everything Ned just said, um, one of the important things to remember is taking advantage of the process that is provided by law that everyone knew about before the election, that is not election denial. 
Challenging rules before the election is not election denial. Taking advantage of the courts and trying to get those rules clarified is actually a pretty good thing. There's, for instance, some very few remaining issues, but for instance, one of the biggest is whether undated ballots that have been segregated, undated mail ballots that have been segregated in Pennsylvania should be counted or not. Fortunately, it looks like that those ballots are not numerous enough to affect the major races in the state of Pennsylvania, but that's a remaining issue. But post-election, if you have the advantage of recounts, as you might, for instance, if it's within a 0.5% margin in Arizona, there's an automatic recount. There are recount provisions, for instance, in the state of Wisconsin, where any losing candidate can request a recount so long as they pay for it. Um, President Trump did not take advantage of that statewide recount option in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, or Michigan in 2020, for instance. So those kinds of things, if they're allowed by law, it's entirely appropriate to pursue them. However, you know, it's, it's virtually unheard of for a margin of even 1,000 votes to be overturned by a recount um, in American history of a statewide election. So it's very likely these margins are going to be outside the recount margin. So they can avail themselves of the legal process, but it's very unlikely to change the outcomes. Uh, let's head back to our inbox. Hi, this is Chris from North Carolina, and I'm calling about all the House of Representatives that were reelected, and all of them in North Carolina voted to um, overturn the election. I can't believe how they won in a landslide. I don't know if the Democratic Party was uh, trying to take the high road, but I don't see, I didn't see any ads stating that these candidates for re-election were voting to overturn the 2020 election. Chris, thanks for that message. Uh, David, Democratic strategists in some states put millions of dollars towards the campaigns of election deniers. The idea was the more extreme candidate would win the Republican primaries only to flounder and be beaten by Democrats in the general. Michigan is one state where that was employed. The strategy appears to have worked. All eight Democratic candidates who benefited from it won their races, according to Reuters. But how sustainable or even ethical is that approach? Well, I mean, I'll leave the ethics to someone else, but I, I, I was troubled by that strategy. I think, you know, we don't, there, there's plenty of instances in American history where a party has propped up an opponent because they thought that opponent couldn't win and the opponent won. And that, you know, we don't have to look much farther back than the 2016 presidential race for uh, evidence of that. So I think it's a very, very dangerous strategy. I think it is, when we're talking about the foundational strength of democracy, it's, um, it's not appropriate to elevate candidates that don't believe in democracy. And I am worried that it does look like the strategy won in this one particular instance, and it might incentivize people to use it again. We got this tweet from Patrice who says, we had two election deniers running against incumbents in New Hampshire. One was running for the U.S. Senate, the other for the U.S. House of Representatives. Both lost. Honestly, once you've hitched your wagon to election denial, reasonable people question your integrity about everything else. Ned, many political analysts agree that this election has been a resounding rejection of election denialism. But what I'm hearing from both you and David is a sort of cautious optimism, but also a warning about the stickiness of this this conspiracy theory. What do you think the future of it looks like? 
Yeah, I, th- I think that captures it right. I mean, North Carolina, again, is another state where a lot of denialists actually prevailed. Uh, my state of Ohio, uh, same thing. Again, the, in the redder states, um, you know, it, it wasn't enough uh, to be a moderate candidate to beat some of the, the more extreme denialists. And, and to go even one step further, I agree with what David said about the dangerousness of, of Democrats trying to prop up denialists as opponents. You know, ultimately... Regardless of one's own personal political preference, uh, democracy in America only works if we have a vibrant, competitive two-party system. Um, You can't have just one of the two major parties believing in democracy and the other uh, major party dominated by uh, the, this idea that they refuse to accept defeat. So, so that we have to get to a system where both parties robustly embrace competition, which means you might lose if the voters don't like you. And, and, and while it's good what happened this week, you still have a, a large part of the Republican Party you know, who have embraced this idea and haven't completely repudiated it. So that, I think, is the danger going forward. We got this tweet from James who says, I live in Indiana where Diego Morales was elected. He's an election denier and is immensely unqualified for this job, but Indiana voters elected him anyway. David, I want you to sort of give us a bigger picture analysis of this, because when we talk about places where election deniers won their races, again, as we said, they were largely um, red states, places where they weren't really competitive Races. So if you're a voter living in one of these states and looking at these results and trying to wrap your head around it, what do you say to someone who's feeling discouraged because they don't think there's the opportunity for a candidate who who doesn't support this to actually win because of the way different districts are drawn because of gerrymandering? Yeah. I mean, I can absolutely understand people who are concerned about this. I mean, in Indiana and South Dakota, for instance, election denial, Republicans defeated sitting incumbent Republican secretaries of state who were well-respected and highly competent um, by spreading this lie of election denialism. Um, And they were both elected um, in those states. So I can understand that completely. What I'm somewhat hopeful for, and I don't want to make it seem as if I'm Pollyannish about this at all, because I think we're still in a potentially dangerous moment. But I'm hoping that the political incentive structure has changed. Because when you see a state like Georgia, where most of the candidates on the statewide ballot on the Republican side were not election deniers. Republicans did very well. When you see the House members in, for instance, the state of New York who did very well on the Republican side, they were by and large not election deniers. When you see the governor, the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Nevada, break the trend in Nevada and actually win election when Democrats won most other um, spots, um, that Republican gubernatorial candidate was not an election denier. So It may be that the incentive structure is changing, but we're going to have to remain very vigilant. This is not over by any means, and it's still going to affect a pretty significant part of the Republican Party for the next several years in all likelihood. That's David Becker. He's the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. That's a nonpartisan nonprofit that works with election officials to build trust in elections. Also with us, Ned Foley, a professor of constitutional and election law at Ohio State University. He's also the author of Ballot Battles, the History of Disputed Elections in the United States. Ned, David, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. We're discussing how election denialism played out this midterm and what that means for the future of democracy. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
Let's get back to our discussion of election denialism during the midterms. Now, democracy isn't the only thing hanging in the balance when it comes to election deniers holding positions of power. The Republican Party is widely responsible for the rise of election denialism, with former President Donald Trump leading the charge. They're now faced with the question of whether to continue down that path or strike out on a new one. So let's add two new voices to talk about the future of the GOP. McKay Coppins is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's also the author of The Wilderness, deep inside the Republican Party's combative, contentious, chaotic quest to take back the White House. McKay, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Rena Shaw. She's a political analyst and public affairs commentator. In the past, she's worked as a Republican strategist. Rena, welcome back. Hey there. Happy to be with you. So Democrats kept their majority in the Senate, which is an extremely rare midterm result for a party with a president in power. Rena, what do you think went wrong for Republicans in this election? I think many things went wrong. I think you can't point to one particular thing. But if you really look at the entire big picture here and zoom out, you do see that it was the Trump effect that did the party in. Underperformance certainly was expected by many of us, but this level tells us that something has to change. Well, we heard from some of you about how you're feeling about the Republican Party right now. I am a Republican. I consider myself a conservative and election denying is bad for our party and it is just crazy to think that there are people that don't understand the way that it was challenged and how there were there was no evidence that any real election fraud occurred. I am a moderate conservative Republican registered voter here in Oklahoma. I am disgusted by the disgusting right wing takeover of our party. Never Trump and never any of his cronies will I ever vote for. Election deniers, I'm tired of it. I'm disgusted by it. And I'm terrified that my party is going to be part of it for the next 20 years. JC, Dave, thanks for those messages. McKay, how big of a role do you think election denying candidates played in the GOP's lackluster performance? Um, I think that it it was a pretty significant factor, even more significant than a lot of people, including myself, thought it would be. Um, When you look at uh, the AP data where they surveyed um, U.S. voters in the week leading up to the election, uh, the the largest concern that was uh, stated by voters was uh, the increasing price of gas, groceries, other goods tied to inflation. The second largest concern was the future of democracy in this country. I, I was among those kind of cynical pundits who has a lot of anxiety about American democracy myself, but wondered whether it was smart strategy for President Biden and other key Democrats to frame this midterm election around that issue. But as it turned out, I think they were onto something. And I think that election denialism turned off those voters who are concerned about American democracy and its its future in this country. When you talk to Republican strategists on the other side and Republican officials, Um, You hear again and again that it it was a huge mistake to make election denialism a effectively litmus test for uh, Republican primary candidates. It meant uh, elevating uh, a bunch of, frankly, not ready for primetime candidates who espoused 
pretty out there beliefs that the average voter simply didn't like and didn't want to see uh, in their their congressional candidates. And I think it cost them a lot of seats. Rena, take us inside the conversations happening within the Republican Party after these major midterm losses. There's real visceral anger uh, and there's been finger pointing. You know, I I have to put it out there. I was not one of the people that thought there would be a red wave. I knew that Americans would reject the fear and the anger and this promulgation of the big lie. In its current form, it's called election integrity. I find that so troublesome. But I also wasn't quite sure about this whole democracy is on the ballot messaging. I'll say this. I saw the Republican Party engage in this culture war, scare people into thinking that they're going to lose something to the Democrats about our society, how it's going a certain way, and that that change isn't going to work. Um, And we can stop that change. That was what uh, even the highest Republican cabals, that was what was being discussed. I think what needed to really happen, and, and we weren't heard on this, is that we needed to talk about small government. We wanted, we needed to talk about the ineffectiveness of certain democratic policies that have led to pain at the pump. Uh, but beyond that, again, the price of daily goods, the impact on American families, the way people feel about their society, that wasn't being discussed. It was these loudest voices that wanted to just continually push culture war and political extremism. And frankly, what I think they didn't take into uh, consideration, which they should be doing now, is that there were going to be mary- many American women out there splitting their ticket. Well, despite the party largely blaming Trump and his candidates for their poor performance over the past several years, Republicans, including those in leadership, have done little to check election denialism. And it's worth remembering that 147 congressional Republicans voted to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. So, McKay, if Republicans choose a different path, how do they hold those who continue to promote these lies accountable? Well, that, that's the problem. I, I, w- I was having this conversation with a, a, a con- somebody in conservative media recently, and they said, you know, how do you even purge election denialism from the party at this point? It's like if you compared it to a cancer, it's metastasized so aggressively that, you know, it's touched almost every senior member of the party, every elected official in the party. Now, there were some, uh, you know, a handful of dissenters, people who refused to take the bait on on this idea that the election was rigged. Um, but so many elected officials have either gone along with the idea, paid lip service to the idea, run on this idea that the, that the election was stolen, that it, it would be... It, pretty difficult for the party to just, you know, kick all those people out, right? More likely, I think what you'll see is um, if the party decides to move away from this is that they'll just kind of stop talking about it, right? The elected officials will say, that was in the past, let's move forward. Um, Whether that will work with voters is an open question, but I don't think it's a a realistic scenario that everybody who has sort of gone along with this rigged election narrative uh, will get kicked out of the party. I do think it's possible that some of the most high-profile uh, Republicans, like frankly Donald Trump, who have you know built their identities around this idea that they may be punished uh, by the party or they may kind of be ostracized. But again, I think it's too early to tell. Well, Rena, I'm thinking about Republicans who have paid a political price for their refusal to line up behind 
the election lies. People like Liz Cheney in, in Wyoming or um, Adam Kensinger in Illinois. And I'm curious whether those conversations inside the GOP around accountability for people who continue to spread these lies or, or support them or run on them, is that a serious conversation you're hearing? There's not been any talk of accountability in the past few years and not even so far this year. I hope that we can change that starting this week. There's been a real sense that people have to get in line or they don't belong in today's Republican Party. There's no more talk of expanding the tent. That hasn't been there for quite some time. They thought that Donald Trump naturally did it, that he brought new people in with his uh, energy, with his ways, you know, all of that. But what they discounted is that there's this growing number of Americans out there who feel homeless politically. And when you look at Cheney and Kinzinger and your person like me, who was never Trump from the outset, you see somebody that's hanging on to reform something that they once cared about. It feels like the parties aren't serving us. And worst of all, it feels like the Republican Party doesn't want to get better. But again, maybe it all changes with the electoral losses of this past week. I'm hopeful. McKay, I know you've been focused on the Republican Party, but are you seeing any similar dynamic playing out on the other side of the aisle? Well, I think that, you know, what's interesting is in the lead up to the midterms, when there was still a lot of talk of the red wave and uh, Democrats were braced for losing uh, both chambers of Congress, there was a lot of, you know, uh, preliminary finger pointing, right? You saw uh, more moderate mainstream Democrats uh preparing to blame the left for their coming losses. And uh, you saw people on the left preparing to say that Joe Biden hadn't done enough to uh, present a compelling vision, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I I think that Democrats' overperformance in these midterm elections, I mean, especially holding the Senate, which is just uh, a pretty remarkable uh, feat given the the climate, uh, have sort of forestalled uh, any kind of immediate recriminations or, or, or reckoning going on inside that party. But, you know, it is important to remember that that we're, we have, uh, we're approaching a presidential election where it is not at all certain that the current incumbent is going to be the Democratic nominee. And I think a lot of the people in, the, in that party are uh, kind of waiting to see what he ends up, what President Biden ends up doing, what decision he ends up making. I know there are a lot of Democrats kind of uh, itching to get into the race. And if Democrats had underperformed, I think there would have been more open public calls to to get him to announce that he, he would not run for re-election. Now, I don't know what's going to happen there, but I think we're going to see a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes maneuvering in the, in the next year or two as we approach the, the next presidential election. Rebecca emails, I have always prided myself on voting for individuals, not parties. However, once Trump was elected and I saw Republicans blocking Obama at every turn, especially with Supreme Court decisions, I decided I would not vote for any Republican until I saw more reasonable actions. I feel like our country is in the last days of Rome. Very scary. And Judy emails, I'm a conservative suburban female and baby boomer. I'm not a registered member of either party because other than pro-life, I have little in common with MAGA Republicans who resist culture change, immigration of non-white people, and who lack respect for democracy. Before 2024, I will likely register as a Republican to vote in the primary against MAGA candidates.
Well, Republican Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland spoke to CNN over the weekend about Donald Trump and his role in the GOP midterm losses. Here's what he had to say. I think common sense conservatives that focused on talking about issues people cared about, like the economy and crime and education, they did win. But people who tried to relitigate the 2020 election and focused on conspiracy theories and you know, talked about things the voters didn't care about, they were almost universally rejected. And it's basically the third election in a row that Donald Trump has cost us the race. And it's like, you know, three strikes, you're out. Political reports that former President Donald Trump could announce his 2024 presidential bid as early as tomorrow. And that's despite members of his circle advising him to wait after the underwhelming midterm performances of many of his candidates. Rena, how could Trump's unwillingness to follow that political strategy potentially backfire for him and his party? You know, I think all this talk of the red wave, funny enough, there wasn't much empirical data behind it. Sure, the math looked a bit more on the side of Republicans when we were, when we were looking at Congress. But if you really look back, you see that this was all fabricated by the right and Trump, and as well as his allies. There was a real sense that if we told them it's true, then it would be. And of course, all politicians do this to try to energize their voters, get them out, get them feeling that something's on the line here. That's fine. But what was unusual here was the real anger at everybody else that wasn't aligned with Trump. I'll say this. Trump is still the dominant force in the Republican Party, and the, but the Democrat bench is getting stronger. So the question really is, does Trump destroy the Republican bench in the name of his own ego? And I think the answer to that is, of course he does, because his ego seems to know no bounds. In the end, Trump, though, he's really, to me, a one-trick pony. He defeated, in my opinion, an incredibly unpopular Democrat, Hillary Clinton, uh, and she had baggage. But that was all before everyone knew how bad Trump could be for the Republican brand. So in the end, what I think we see here is a situation where Trump will do what he wants to do. And he may announce, but that announcement for 2024, which is over 700 days away, uh, if, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, it's never too early, right, to start a presidential. I do think this announcement, if Trump says he's going to run, puts the party in a really untenable position. I think that it's a boon to Democrats. Uh, my suspect, I suspect that Biden doesn't run in 2024, but he's keeping his powder dry to influence who, whoever his successor may be. And I don't think it's going to be BVP Harris. So the situation is not good for the Republicans with Trump still very much wanting to take center stage and actually, arguably, still at center stage. Okay, I, I want to hear from you on that. But I also want to point out that despite uh, Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016, she she did win the popular vote by almost 3 million votes. And so I just want to contextualize that a little bit. McKay, go ahead. When we talk about Trump's unwillingness to follow the political strategy he's he's being advised to follow by many of his supporters, people in his circle, what does that mean for the GOP long term? Well, I think it's basically going to force the party to confront the Trump issue head on. If there are any candidates who want to beat him in the primary and emerge as the Republican standard bearer presidential nominee in 2024, they're going to have to run against Donald Trump. They can't dance around the issue. They can't tiptoe around it. If he announces in the coming days, as it's been reported, he will, uh, the the if somebody is going to knock him off, whether that's Ron DeSantis in Florida or you know another candidate, they're going to have to run against him, and that and that means more than just having their name on a ballot. It means they're going to have to 
prosecute him and his record. They're going to have to uh, litigate his presidency. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know yet if there will be a Republican willing to do that and able to do that effectively. But the party is not going to be able to just kind of pretend Donald Trump didn't happen. If they're going to move beyond the Trump era, they're going to have to find a new leader who will take him on directly. That's McKay Coppins. McKay is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's also the author of The Wilderness, deep inside the Republican Party's combative, contentious, chaotic quest to take back the White House. Also with us, Rena Shaw. She's a political analyst and public affairs commentator. In the past, she's worked as a Republican strategist. Rena, McKay, thanks to you both. You can follow the show on Instagram at The1AShow. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.